think life is always an assumed risk. And so you have to sort of say to yourself, which are the risks that I'm going to pay attention to and which are the risks that I'm going to try and mitigate? Um, and how much of these can I trust and how much risk am I willing to assume? This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life. Good. How are you? Yeah, not bad, mate. Not bad. So you just got back from uh, New Orleans. I understand you were down there doing some, uh, doing some filming and some stuff for your for your podcast. Some filming. Yeah, we we ran the the Mardi Gras parade routes before the parades. Yeah, and then uh, watched the parades and yeah, yeah. It was a lot of a lot of people, a lot of uh, revelry. Yeah, and uh-huh. a fair amount of debauchery, but uh, all, all viewed from the sidelines. <laughs> That's what you'd hope to find in New Orleans. I'd be disappointed otherwise. So, and you drove down there, right? So it was um, you and, and your son and your daughter, Alan and Yael. You went down, there. right? Yeah, so, like a fourteen-hour drive. Fourteen-hour drive. Yeah, bro. So, do you mind me asking why you decided to drive rather than fly down there? Was that a decision based on mostly cost, economics, or was it anything else? Oh. Um, mostly economics. It was yeah. with, with three of us. We could, uh, you know. Spend about one hundred and twenty dollars in gas versus fifteen hundred dollars. Fifteen hundred. Wow, it's five hundred bucks for a return flight to. Yeah, like, to Louisiana. You know, yeah. At, at that point during Mardi Gras. Right. So, oh prime, yeah, of course. Yeah. Prime prime season, but also, um, you know, honestly, and I think this might this might dovetail into what I know we're going to be talking about. Yeah. It just feels better to be in a car. Yeah. There's there's I mean there's there's you know the control of like oh I want to stop now and yeah. stretch my legs and go to the bathroom and buy a bag of boiled peanuts. Yeah. Um, but there's also, it feels safer. Yeah, it feels safer, right? It feels like you're in control of the thing. You could stop and get out wherever you want to versus obviously air travel is what we're talking about, right? Um, but then if you believe the statistics, um, the air travel is so safe and as, as a form of travel that you're exponentially more likely to be in a car crash, on, especially on a 14 hour drive, right? From here, from, you know, Carborough, North Carolina, all the way down to Louisiana, exponentially more risk involved. If you just look at the raw stats, um, being in a car than it would be on an aeroplane. So how do you kind of reconcile that in your head? Why is it that the stats don't seem to bear out what we feel about risk? Yeah, I mean, and I think about this because I'll always, you know, remind my wife if I go on a plane trip before I go, like, here's the folder with the life insurance. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Here's the passwords to mm. all my online stuff. Yeah. And I don't do that when I go, you know, drive to, to Carborough yeah. to, to go to Weaver Street Market. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's basically availability bias mm-hmm. and the, the sort of the salience. Like when you think of an airplane, it just seems so unlikely that this giant hunk of metal is yeah. even able to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, every, you know, I, like everybody else, am a, an above average driver. Yeah, of course. We all believe ourselves to be. Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. even, you know, my daughter's driving. And of course, it's, I'm much more nervous when she's driving than when I'm driving. Mm, yeah. Um, but still, you know, all my children are above average. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, human beings are not designed to think statistically. 
No, we're definitely not. Yeah, we have the, the, most of the research bears out, and this is kind of what I'd like to talk about a little bit today, that humans, we're woefully bad at risk perception, right? And we, we're terribly, terrible at weighing up how risky something is. We overestimate risks in a lot of situations, and we woefully underestimate them in others. Um, and interestingly, some years back, in my other guise as a science writer, I'm writing popular science books mostly for kids and teenagers, I wrote a book called Stuff That Scares Your Pants Off. And the whole <laughs> idea about this book was to take things that typically... Um, Kids, but also adults, get scared of, right? You can get scared of shark attacks or spiders or snakes, um, but also flying on aeroplanes, maybe UFO abduction, I don't know, any number of things that people might be scared of. And then just kind of look at them scientifically and rationally. And the whole idea is that we talk about the thing that we're afraid of, and then I present the stats. For example, like if you're afraid of being struck by lightning, well, you know, as long as you go indoors when the, light, when the storm starts to come around, you're not outside waving a golf club in the air on a plain area where there's nothing taller than you, um, you're very unlikely to be hit by lightning but that doesn't mean you should engage in risky behaviors but assuming you don't engage in risky risky behaviors you're looking at about a one in six million chance of randomly being struck by lightning about the same thing for like a meteorite impact actually hitting you on the head or something like that right and by discussing the stats and kind of looking at everything this will contextualize the whole thing make you feel different about it and then and then you'll go about your life in a different way but unfortunately that doesn't seem to hold true across the board, right? It's like you can know those stats and it feels no different when you're on an airplane that's bouncing around in turbulence. Right, right. well, it reminds yeah. me of Dan Ariely's work um, and, you know, on these cognitive biases and, sure. and the, the metaphor that he uses are like the Muller liar illusion, yeah. the, uh, op these optical illusions that even when you, you measure the lines yeah. that are e equal length, because they have spikes protruding or intruding, yeah. you still fool yourself. Yeah. So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example from, from Mardi Gras. We were walking along a parade route, and there's you know all these sort of you know pe people eating crappy food and, and mm. drunk out of their gourds. Yeah. And there's a there's a little party going on in one of the uh, little parking lots off of the off of the route, mm. and a guy had a uh, a cooler, a, a white chest cooler, and it yeah. said free beer, take mm. one. Mm. And so fairly you know so all the drunk people would wander around, lift up the lid for the cooler. Yeah. And and inside was actually this um, like um, rubber or um, uh, like stuffed animal of like a cobra. Okay. Yeah. And it was attached to the lid. So when you lifted the lid, <laughs> it would raise up. Nice. And so I saw somebody. Yeah. Scared out of their wits by it. Yeah. But mm. I I didn't see what was in it. I just saw them lift it up. And, yeah, yeah. And then I wanted to to try it out myself but I was yeah. I was kind of scared and I lifted it up and I saw the cobra yeah. and I, I made a little squeak yeah. and I jumped back and yeah. I dropped the lid and I said like I know yeah. there's nothing dangerous in there yeah, yeah. I was prepared to be surprised and yet sure. the sight of a of a hooded cobra rising out yeah. of a cooler yeah scared me it Triggered it, it it went straight to the amygdala it completely yeah. bypassed my my uh, rational brain yeah so so there's an aspect of that which is uh, again based on innate fears and snakes are an interesting one because they're one of the very few innate fears that we're actually born with and we're not actually born to be afraid of snakes we're just born to be wary of things that move like snakes Right, so mm -hmm. literally things that slither and pattern like that way, and a little bit scuttling things as well. So spiders are about the same kind of thing. Like somewhere in our deep evolutionary past, we learned that if we're not wary of snakes or things that scuttle, some of them can sting and bite you, and you might not recover from that. Right, mm -hmm. especially the, there is a wider range of things that could kill you. 
back in past evolutionary times too because now we have antivenoms and we can recover from necrosis if you get a spider bite or something but back then that would mean you know you lose an arm and you can't feed your family or you get an infection or something else happens right um so we're innately afraid a little bit or we're innately wary of things that look like snakes or spiders a little bit right but obviously you can override that over time if you become like one of these become a herpetologist or just like a, a snake enthusiast and you keep them in your house and you hang out with them all the time, then you build up a different series of experiences and memories. So memory is one way in which we mediate the way that we perceive threats, right? And somebody wrapping a cobra around their neck and hanging around with a whole bunch of snakes might seem incredibly risky to the average person who has no direct experience of working with snakes safely for a long time, but to somebody who's um, very into herps, right? They might, they might be like, well, this is fine. I've been doing this for years. I've never been bitten or I got bitten once and it wasn't that bad, right? So their experience mediates how it is that they feel on an ongoing basis. So memory is one way that we attenuate our perception of risk and make it either more realistic or actually less realistic. So coming back to the examples of air travel, right? I know that air travel is way safer than driving. Um, but every time I go to Toronto, it's a 14 hour drive from here to Toronto, I drive. And again, it's partly an economic decision and it's partly I just don't feel like getting on airplanes if I don't have to uh, mm -hmm. anymore. Oh, I have to fly when I go back to see my parents and Europe and all that kind of stuff. And I will get on planes. I just never enjoy the experience anymore. Now, I wasn't always like this. I used to be fine. Um, but in about 2008, I was flying to Scotland from Raleigh um, following a tornadic storm that came through and, and ripped through. Um, right in the golf course behind our house in Raleigh and actually the tornado tore out a whole bunch of trees and did a whole bunch of stuff and we were like cowering in the basement as this thing went past and it didn't really do any damage to our house but it damaged the roads all near us such that when I emerged and then tried to get to the airport because I was supposed to be flying to Scotland to do a book tour for these books that I've been writing um, there were trees down all over the road there were um, stoplights had crashed down and there were crews out trying to repair the stoplights and I couldn't even get out of the road that I normally take to get up to the airport I went the other way I weaved around and I, I thought I'd better make a shot at getting to the airport. I thought, no, I'll probably ground the planes anyway, right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, because of the storm coming through. Um, but the, the ticket had been bought for me and I was expected to be in Scotland to do this book tour and everything, right? So, but I found a way through and I drove to the airport and some of the planes have been grounded. Most of the planes have been grounded. I hung out and I thought, well, I'll just stay here long enough for them to tell me that they're delayed and you can't go. And then I'll be able to phone the publisher and say, sorry, it didn't work out. Maybe I'll come in a couple of days or whatever it's gonna be. But they took a decision. They were like, no, we're gonna push this one through. We're gonna fly the plane up the coast. And then we're gonna cut across eastwards across the Atlantic because there's a break in the storm system. So the storm system was still there mm. and it was moving across the North Carolina coast and then out into the Atlantic. And they took the decision to take the plane off and then fly through it or through a part of it based on radar and things and then go out. And they told us this up front, right? Um, I wasn't altogether happy about this, getting on the plane, but I'm like, I presume they know what they're doing. They flew upwards towards Maryland. Normally you go further, right? And you go up towards Newfoundland and go, kind of go across that way and almost over Iceland when you fly to England. Um, but they cut across at like Maryland. They took like a hard right to try and get through a break in the storm system that was running mm. north to south. And they flew, they thought they could fly over it, um, but apparently couldn't. Um, and the plane started bouncing around like crazy and not just chop or turbulence that I've experienced before, but it was literally falling for two or three seconds and everybody in the place is screaming like they're on a roller coaster. And I was on this plane, it was bouncing around like crazy and the pilot's trying to reassure everybody saying, sorry about this, we're kind of in this, but it's gonna be 30 minutes and then we'll be clear. We're gonna be in this thing for 30 minutes and then we'll be out of it. Right, this way we can't get over it. He actually told us what was going on. It's like, mm. we thought we could get over it, we can't. Um, it's gonna be another half an hour, but it's bear with us and it'll be okay. 
thing is bouncing around, people are kind of screaming and shouting. I've kind of looked out the window and I'm like, oh, I've had a pretty good life, I suppose. I lived in Japan, I got to meet some really interesting people. I've got one kid, you know. <laughs> kind of, actually, I don't have any kids by that point, that kind of stuff, right? But I was really worried, um, though. I was, I was kind of trying to come to terms with things and think, well, maybe this is it. You know, this thing's going to fall out of the bloody sky. Um, we were in that for another hour and a half. And the storm was basically moving with us and we were bouncing around for a very, very long time. The pilot went quiet, stopped reassuring everybody and just started concentrating. Mm. Um, and then eventually we came out of it and then bounced our way across the Atlantic and eventually landed safely in Scotland. That one trip ruined my experience of air, air travel pretty much for about the next three years. For every flight I took after that, I was suddenly white knuckling it in a way that I'd never been before. I was fine on planes before that. And I'd written books about the risk and I'd you know, reassured my wife and other people in planes, ah, this is safe as houses, you're fine. But that one experience gave me a complete new memory of how fallible the plane can be when it's in the air. And it didn't crash, so I didn't have an experience of crashing and dying. So you could say, oh, well, then my memory should be that I went through some really bad turbulence and survived, so I should feel more... Yeah. Uh, you know, more confident about air travel. But that's not what my brain said. My brain said, you nearly died. You shouldn't do that again. Don't get on a plane again <laughs> like that way. So the, so the next three years, I was really willing myself to get on planes and I had to kind of breathe through it and just really um, figure it all out. That's ebbed over time. Now I just dislike it. Now I'm not afraid of it. I just don't enjoy the experience. I'll get on, I'll zone out, I'll put my headphones on, I'll watch a bunch of terrible movies and I'll get there, right? But it's the least... Um, favorite part of the experience and if I can drive somewhere instead of getting on a plane then I still will for the mm. most part right so that memory has made me or at least for a good period of time it's made me more averse to air travel than I otherwise would have been assessing it as more risky than it otherwise is so memory is a big deal and the reason why I kind of bring this up is that um because finally like 10 minutes into the podcast we're going to talk about Sistema <laughs> is that I think Sistema is a really efficient way um, both of, of helping us reinterpret experiences as they happen um, if we have something like that, an associative memory. Um, and in my case, burst breathing and kind of calming my stress response really helped during that first three-year period so that I didn't kind of go too nuts when I was on a plane. And now it helps me contextualize the whole thing, right? Um, but also it helps us, I think, the process of training, uh, the process of coming to terms with impact and falling and claustrophobia and suffocation and any number of other kind of innate fears that we might have and gives us new memories and new experiences and new associations that allow us to contextualize um, our fears and in doing so alter our risk perception in different ways. I think so. Uh, Sistema has an extra value to that, I think. So, yeah, that's what was coming to me when you were ta telling the story about the plane and yeah. the fact that even though you survived, yeah. you didn't um, put it in the cabinet of more proof that planes are safe. Right. Yeah. That it seems different from my experience in Sistema, where I, yeah. I walk in the first day with a fear of getting choked or strangled or armbarred sure. or punched in the face. Yeah. And those fears have all been realized yeah. mm. in, re in, in the training, mm. and now I'm less afraid of them. So I'm curious what the difference is between, you know, if, if, you know, if, if Vladimir and Mikhail were on that plane with you, yeah. would that have made a difference? Or like, what, what, what's, the, what's the formula or the recipe mm. for going into a scary experience and coming out less scared? So, um, so most of the research says that there's kind of, the risk perception is done in two ways inside our brains, right? And there's kind of two major systems and Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky's work on this of the kind of like the two 
systems of thinking mm-hmm. um, feed into this in a big way, right? And this whole behavior economics thing. Um, the first system is very fast. You know, Daniel Kahneman calls it system one. It's fast, it's intuitive, and it's associative. It's the one that we use 99% of the time, right? It just kicks in to help us make snap decisions um, largely around risk and survival situations, but around everything else as well. Um, it basically takes uncertainties and unknowns and then uses rules of thumb or heuristics to try and put a, a kind of a snap judgment on something. And it helps us to make quick decisions. Um, so it's very rapid and it's been historically very, very useful for us. All of our ancestors, when they see a lion, they're not like, I wonder if that's a dangerous lion. They're just like, lion, run away, right? Yeah. <laughs> right away, you just make a snap decision and you go. Um, and it typically outpaces that other part of the brain, the rational brain which would like to weigh things up and consider how dangerous lions really are or the best way to deal with a lion or how dangerous flying really is or any of those things, right? Um, it's notoriously difficult to ignore or to fight, right? It's, it's really, really good at what it does at keeping us alive for, for the most part in most situations. So our brain is disinclined to let us ignore it, right? It, and it tends to, especially in high pressure situations or what we perceive as high pressure situations, it takes precedence, it really goes for it. Now the other major system, which Kahneman calls system two, is the kind of slow, rational, logical, deliberative brain, right? It's the thing that stops and analyzes and thinks about the whole situation, tries to place it in context, tries to weigh evidence, largely from memory, which we'll get onto in a minute, which is, not, which is also fallible, right? Um, and then it tries to make kind of like a, a measured decision about what the best course of action is of many going forwards, right? It, it takes its time and it tries to work some stuff out. Now, this is usually useless under pressure from the brain's point of view because it's just too slow. It takes too long to come to a good decision. So it's rarely trusted by the brain. The brain normally defaults to system one. And even when your rational system is trying to kick in, often because it's going too slow, it will ask itself another question and then system one will jump back in again. And then system one will make a decision and then you'll rationalize the decision afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say I want, um, I want to take off on a plane or something, and then somebody says, oh, there's an engineering problem, but uh, we're going to fix it probably. It'll be fine. The engine's kind of was on fire earlier, but we've got an engineer on that, and it's going to be fine. We're, we're taking off in about 10 minutes. So it's just a short delay because of that, right? Um, so I might start to kind of weigh this up and be like, I don't know if I want to get on this plane. Maybe I should talk to the gate agent and think about something else, right? Um, staying on the subject. Um, and ultimately, my fast, intuitive brain has already made a decision. I'm not getting on that friggin' plane, right? <laughs> Based on what I've, I've seen there. But then I will kind of make that decision and I'll pretend to kind of rationalize it and I'll think about it. And I'll basically, instead of asking the question, is it logical to get on this? Do I trust the mechanics? What are the statistics for this thing coming off? At least they found the problem, which means they're probably going to fix it. All of those kinds of things. I'll pretend to be weighing those things up in my head and pretend to come to a logical decision. But really, the question I've asked myself is, do I want to get on this plane right now? Right? And, and my logical brain answers that, and then I justify afterwards as like, no, I've, you know, I weighed it all up, and you know, mechanistically, I wasn't sure about getting on this thing with my engineering background and all that kind of stuff. And I decided logically not to get on the plane. It's like, no, you didn't. You just didn't want to, right? right. System, um, system two is doing Sudoku. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just but, filling in the numbers that are already there. Yeah, and it does that a lot, and you can, and you can kind of justify things a lot. So another example might be, you know, I, I talk about risk and planes and all that kind of thing, but we're at your house in Cabra, and I rode here on my Triumph 1200 motorcycle, right? So, so of all the modes of travel I could have chosen to get from my house to yours, that's short of skateboarding on a main road, right? <laughs> Probably that's one of the most risky, right? Um, 
when I decided to start motorcycling, which was only actually a few years ago, I never grew up doing it. I didn't have role models of people who were motorcycling all over the place. It's just something I decided I wanted to get into a few years ago. I understood that it was risky. I wanted to give it a try. Um, and then when I really decided I wanted to make a go of it and buy a motorcycle, I went through a whole bunch of courses, right? So I did the more than just getting the basic license endorsement. I went through a lengthy course at a place in Raleigh and I got assessed by people. And then even after I passed that course, I took them up on an extended course where they ride around with you on the roads instead of just weaving through cones and doing things that are not under pressure. You're riding out on major roads and maybe you go out onto expressways and things and a rider comes with you, usually a police rider who's been doing it for years, and kind of critiques your technique, like where you present yourself in the road, signaling, lane choice, all that kind of stuff, and in order to make you even safer so you're learning from their experience. Um, I wear all the gear, I don't ride in t-shirts, so if I fell off I would just be down to the bone right away, all that kind of stuff, right? So I have a, a proper helmet, all that kind of stuff, not just a ridiculous lid that would just crack open if I hit my head on the ground anyway. Um, but even given all these things, it's still a risky, risky uh, pastime, it really is, and I understand that, but I've decided to mitigate those risks as best I can in the, in the knowledge that I like motorcycling, that's what I'm gonna do. So I can kid myself into thinking that logically, I've weighed up all the risks and now it's safe, right? And my logical brain can kind of tell me that's what I did, but really what's going on is my fast intuitive brain has said, you've ridden motorcycles lots of times and you haven't fallen off or killed yourself yet. And based on that memory and that experience, it's saying, you'll be fine, right? Mm -hmm. So actually I have to work against that, that overconfidence bias all of the time with all the other stuff, but it's not really a logical decision. It was a purely logical decision. I just wouldn't ride motorcycles, right? So in a way, there's some kind of hypocrisy there and some stuff going on. Um, but I think life is always an assumed risk. And so you have to sort of say to yourself, which are the risks that I'm gonna pay attention to and which are the risks that I'm gonna try and mitigate? Um, and how much of these can I trust and how much risk am I willing to assume? Because if you assume none, then you end up in a little safe bubble in which you don't go anywhere or do anything. And the, and the number of things that you're able to do in life become exponentially smaller over time, right? So there's kind of this balance, this kind of tension between assuming a bit of risk and doing useful things and having opportunities and assuming less and less risk and becoming a, a recluse and doing, yeah. and doing nothing. Well, and I, think, I think the issue is ultimately about are you making informed choices? Yeah. So you're making an informed choice about your motorcycle riding. Yeah. Right? People who do, like there, I just saw in the news, there was an Austrian snowboarder who broke his neck yeah. in the Olympics yesterday. Mm. Right? Presumably he knew that he was doing a very risky thing and the chance for the, the exhilaration of it and the glory of it and the challenge of it yeah. uh, to some extent made up for it. So you know, we, can, we can be as safe as we want or as risky as we want mm. and you know, before the fact... And yeah. then after the fact, we can then decide, you know, because of the way, like the coin toss, yeah. that mm -hmm. we ended up making a bad decision yeah. when in fact that wasn't the case. We were, sure. we were following the risk. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I was just reading an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, about the, the statistics and the practice of, of doing risky things in sports. Okay. And specific, not, not risky in terms of our life, but in terms of winning or losing. Yeah. So one example was... Um, in football, after you score a touchdown, you can mm. either go for the safe one-point kick through, mm. you know, a 25 or 30-yard kick through the, the uprights, almost, you know, 99% yeah. of them get made. Mm. Or you can go for the two-point conversion, which is on the, mm. I think on the one or two-yard line, mm. and it's about a 50% success okay. rate. Yeah. And they show, like, basically, 
teams that went for it at very late in the game, mm. where where if you t if you sh get one point, you tie, and then you go into overtime, yeah. and then you try to win in overtime, mm. versus two points to win the game outright now, yeah. that overwhelmingly they mm. were risk averse. Yeah. They were like because they, they didn't want to to mess up then and there and lose. Mm. Yeah. And so, and, but the teams that went for the two point conversion, they either won it or lost it right there. They did much better. Mm. Interesting. And yeah. yet still, even having access to these statistics, yeah. the coaches who made the decision mm. didn't want to be perceived as being risk, you know, taking yeah. a risk there. Unnecessary even, risk. An yeah. Unnecessary risk. So, yeah. so they were they were actually sort of pushing it off. Yeah. So I think there's ways in which taking risk is actually less risky than not taking risk. Yeah, absolutely. There is. And this actually kind of brings us to the example of, um, well, via kind of sports into Sistema or something like that, right? And so... There's the risk, for example, you could teach your child never to go near water, right? Um, and not bother teaching them how to swim. Now, tending a child to swimming lessons is inherently risky because they're swimming in the water, something horrible could happen, right? And that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Probably it's not gonna happen statistically, right? Um, but the risk of them risking something while they're learning how to swim or building up experiences swimming in either kind of closed water environments or in open water environments in the sea and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, there's a risk period building that up, but over time they'll get more skilled and they'll be better able to assess the risk for themselves. And then they'll um, be better able to deal with real emergencies if they happen, right? They wouldn't drown if they got dropped into the sea in a certain way, or if they've experienced the rip current or something, they'd know not to try and fight it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's an argument for teaching everybody to swim as a basic risk mitigation strategy of somebody being drowned, but given that you know most of the planet's covered in water and you're probably gonna fall in some at some point, right, and that kind of stuff. Now I'd argue the same thing for kind of self-defense and for just training Sistema for, for movement and for relaxation. Because if you look at the things that kill us, it's not typically plane crashes for the most part, right? And it's not typically active shooters in schools and or half of the things that are, well, terrorism or half of the things that are put forward on television, right? And again, television and the media create a, a set of false associative memories that we'll ingest and our brains will think as as information and part of the informed decision as to like should I or should I not let my kid go to this school and all that kind of stuff right and um, they'll be put into those but the things that actually kill us are falls accidents typically in the home right drowning in the bath falling over at home and breaking your neck falling off a ladder trying to fix something diy diy is exponentially one of the riskiest things you can possibly do in your life but you don't see people avoiding lows like, to yeah. go and get stuff all the time or being terrified of going to do diy right they do it all the time um car crashes so car crashes are one of the um a leading cause of death in the states coronary heart disease right um suicide is another one right um and then kind of acquired pulmonary diseases and things like that right so if you're looking at mitigating those risks maybe you should learn to get good at falling you should do lots of like kind of increased um pressure tested driving drills not just pass the basic driving test but learn how to you know get out of a car if it's kind of gone off a bridge and it's being submerged or something like that right or learn how to um escape a car if it's been crashed and you can't get the seatbelt open and all that kind of thing. Um, falling, these kind of escapes from cars, escaping from uh, being trapped, these are all things we train in Sistema that would make you less susceptible to these real tangible risks. These are the things, you know, statistically they're gonna do it. And yet somebody could look at Sistema and they could look at us training and say, oh, this is a risky thing you're doing, right? You're lending somebody else your body and you're pushing each other to the ground and you're falling over hundreds of thousands of times a week. Right, and falling is dangerous. So any one of those times you could fall and hit your head 
right? Or at least break your leg or something like that while you're in training doing martial arts. And so you you have a risky pastime versus say chess or something else like that, right? It's like, but to my mind, it's like, well, there's an assumed risk in doing any contact sport. But if what you're learning could keep you safer in the long run, then there's a balance to doing that as you as you go up. Now, of course, there's there's gradations within that, right? You can learn to escape from a uh, a car in a nice, safe environment, and you can train at a slow speed with people that you trust, or you can just go, you know, crazy all out trying to jump out of a car that's already moving to see if you can <laughs> see if you can roll out of it and all that kind of stuff without having trained properly. And you can just fight with people to see whether or not you can survive fights, right, and that kind of stuff. So, so there's levels and gradations of how you assume risk and how you make it happen. But in the end, I think what we're doing is that we're creating new experiences and we're creating new associations that will either make us safer or less safe over time. And, and it's, it's how we direct those decisions that's important. Well, I think there's another element to Sistema, at least in my experience, mm -hmm. which is the emphasis on internal awareness. Yeah. It's not just that you, know, you as the instructor know exactly what level I'm at and you present me a challenge appropriate to that level because you mm -hmm. don't and you can't. Right, sure. Right. It's that if, if you're constantly reminding me, pay attention to your body, pay attention to your breathing, to your muscular tension, notice mm. your surroundings, notice what happens when we do the clumping, flocking drill and you're too close to somebody else or you bump into them, notice your reactions. Yeah. It's then that I'm better able to decide, you know, I'm in a moving car that's rolling down a hill. Do I jump out? Do I stay in it? Yeah. I'm able, I have a, a lexicon of experiences that I've, metabolized yeah that it's it's not just you know from movies or statistics statistics sure. or yeah. the knee jerk right yeah. that i could i can override all of those mm. based on some wisdom yeah. that i've gained through awareness yeah and it's and it's really kind of like a body wisdom right it's an embodied wisdom that you have it's something that from the neck down just kicks into action when you're under pressure not something that you have to think about which is critical coming back to kahneman's definition of the fast and the slow um, modes of thinking, right? Under pressure, you're probably not going to analyze anything. So anything logical that you have to think about is probably not going to emerge when you really need it. So what you need is to create new associations that your body will just, your brain will just go to fast um, based on how it remembers what worked in the past, right? And if you haven't got any experience of falling, you haven't got any experience of getting out of a car at high speed, right? And you haven't got any experience of, you know, um, of riding a motorcycle, whatever it is, then you'll have nothing else to fall back on. And, and your brain will just go to knee jerk or it will go to full body tension, right? And that can get you killed if you fall off a motorcycle or it can get you killed if you're falling. It really can, like the tension can kill you more than the, uh, you know, more than the alternative, which is having another option. And um, this kind of comes in a little bit into also this whole idea, something else that I think Sistema does is that it helps us come to kind of like the present moment and to trust our present instincts instead of relying too much on you know what worked in the past all the time. So um, I think it's Kahneman and Tversky as well um, talk about that there's kind of two senses of self that we have, right? It's almost like we have two selves inside a body. We don't have mm -hmm. just one ego, one self that's kind of thinking about things. There's the remembering self, right? Um, which kind of remembers your past experiences. And we spend most of our time in learning and, and in memory formation in this drawing from this, right? And our idea of ourselves is based on our memories, which is why something like Alzheimer's is so terrifying. We lose the sense of self through that. Um, and this is, is exponentially weighted towards kind of peak experiences, right? So if some, for example, the classic experiment they have is that they give somebody like a, a painful, painfully cold 
bath of water and you have to put your hand in it for a, a good length of time. Or they apply electric shocks at ever increasing kind of, uh, you know, intensity to your hand. And then they kind of ask you to hang out with that for like a minute and a half or something like that. And then they'll do another experiment where there's less time, um, but um, a little bit more intensity just for short periods. And then they ask people which they'd rather do. And a lot of the time they'll hang out for longer experiencing more net pain um, because that peak experience of that little stab makes it seem like that was worse, yeah. right? So or, that or the, the colonoscopy experiment. What was that one? Oh, oh this yeah. is, this yeah. is um, um, give, giving men a colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. and Which is it, always it, fun. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I've heard. Yeah. So it, so it would last for 20 minutes and then they would pull the scope out. Yeah. And then the other one was the same 20 minutes, but then for the last five minutes, they wouldn't move the scope. So mm. it was much less... Painful. Now, you okay. would, I would argue that a scope up your butt for five minutes yeah. is a net negative sure. experience anyway, but the people yeah. who got the 25 minute, got the longer one yeah. with a lower peak at the, at the yeah. end, yeah. reported much more likely to return. Right. Like they would get another, you know, they, yeah, this yeah. wasn't so bad. Yeah. So that's, yeah, so that's key because they call it actually a peak end experience. So what we remember is both the peak, the emotional peak in whatever happened and how it ended. And that's the clear, clear bit about that experiment is that there might have been pain throughout the whole thing, but at the end it ended not so bad. And so our brain kind of splits the difference when it's creating a memory and sort of says it was pretty bad in the middle, but it ended not too bad. So maybe it was about a five out of 10. Whereas yeah. if it was pretty bad in the middle and then it kind of drops off abruptly, then it's like, well, that's probably about a seven out of 10 on average all the way well, that's, through. That's why yeah. I keep signing up for these races. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> in the middle of the race or the near, yeah. near the end of the race, I'm in sure. agony. Yeah. You know, 50K, a fast marathon. Yeah. But I cross the finish line. Yeah. And the race is over and everyone's cheering for everyone. And then someone puts a trinket around my neck. And yeah. I and get you're like, it was up. all worth it. Yeah. it was all <laughs> and then you don't remember the middle part or it's at least hugely right. attenuated in your memory based on how it ended and the, the feeling of elation and experience that you got. Right. Because the yeah. next time I run a race and I'm in the middle, I'm like, oh, yeah. 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 Now, I, I'd forgotten that this part existed. Right, absolutely. Yeah, an example of a friend of mine I was talking to yesterday who has uh, two kids, aged three and five, and he was asking how my kids are doing. And I was saying, yeah, they're great. My five-year-old is just pretty happy all the time. He's a good kid. And then the one-year-old is super happy as well, but tends to be super happy also at three in the morning, right? And just kind of wake up and like, hey, I want to play. And we're like, not now. And uh, all that kind of stuff. But, it, you know, it's it's... It's not bad. Like Sean was more of a screamer when he was younger and all that kind of stuff. And my friend Matt said, oh, both of mine were total screamers. They were just screamed all the way through. Like they've screamed waking up all through the night. And my, his wife is at a point where, where she's like, mm, maybe we should think about number three. And he's like, may I remind you? <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's like, so the, the end experience is they've got a well-behaved three-year-old and five-year-old who they're really enjoying. But it's just like, may I remind you of that peak experience? She went, oh yeah, yeah, let's not. Right. So, so literally had to draw her back to that kind of thing in the middle. So that's kind of key. But I I think yeah this is so this offers the justification or the rationale behind the way that we train in Sistema and especially how we integrate kind of um, massage and relaxation after a, a kind of a peak experience right so mm -hmm. um, an extreme example might be the kind of Konstantin Komarov style of uh, stress inoculation where you're literally you know lying on the ground and somebody's like punching you like and you're just lying there breathing on the ground um, and then you might hold your breath uh, while they're punching you in order to m kind of drive the adjutant's level even higher. Um, and then they're hitting you quite hard and they're doing this for quite a while. And then when it's, um, when the instructor ascertains that you're kind of, you're illimit, you're going to scramble the egg here rather than just crack it. Then he starts kind of not just, he doesn't just stop abruptly and stop beating 
the seven bells out of you, right? If he did that, then you'd probably get something akin to PTSD, right? You've just mm -hmm. been smashed about the you know, body and face for a while, and then you're like, oh, that was scary. I don't want to do that again. But instead, they start to hit you lighter and slap you lighter, and then they come down to just pressure and contact, and then it just turns into soothing massage. And so there's this peak of like, I was getting beaten up, and I was getting punched, and I was getting slapped in the face, and it was terrible, and it was every bit as bad as I imagine it would be if I wasn't able to fight back, right? And it was just somebody hitting me. Um, but then this tails off with a kind of a reassuring, you're okay, you survived it, you're okay. And the memory that's formed after that is one of, I can go through a beating and I'm fine. There's no long-term damage here. Mm -hmm. So there was a peak experience of like pretty terrible nine out of 10, uh, but the end is very, very soothing. And what it comes out is, at, is a kind of a net kind of like four out of 10 you know, being beaten up around the face and head is not all that bad, right? Mm -hmm. And this is an extreme example, not everybody's gonna go through it. But even in the more kind of, in the lighter examples of being afraid of falling over, for example, or something like that, right? So you might, uh, if you just go straight into a class and say, okay, you have to learn to fall over. So we'll do it kind of Viking swimming style and just throw you in the pool and see whether or not you could swim going that way, right? Um, or John Wayne, I guess there's an old John Wayne movie where he did that or something, just threw the kid in the pool and that's, well, that's how you teach him how to swim and that kind of stuff, right? Um, that's just as likely to result in a sinking kid with, with a post-traumatic stress disorder as it is a swimming kid who's confident, I think, right? Um, so instead of bringing somebody in saying, you have to get over your fear of falling, so we're just gonna throw you at the ground and then we're gonna blindfold you and make you fall over and all that kind of stuff, right? Probably that would just be terrifying when people wouldn't learn a great deal. So instead we start from ground level, we kind of engage the ground very, very slowly, we kind of get comfortable with it, and then we get somebody else to shove you around, create a peak experience in which you're a little bit scared and you get fired up and you're like, I'm losing my balance and I'm gonna crack my elbow on the floor or something. Um, but you survive that and then we kind of scale that back down again and go slower and slower. And, and the net result of doing that both within one session and over time is, is that you gradually become unafraid of falling over. It just becomes a thing, right? Mm. And, and then in your daily life, and this has happened many, many times to me, it happens almost you know, every three or four days, something will happen where you kind of start to lose your balance. And most of the time you won't even fall all the way over because you relax enough that you regain your footing. You don't do like a tense, frozen posture that typically results in you slipping even more and falling all the way over. But even if you do fall further, you'll just kind of roll off of a forearm or a fleshy bit of the body instead of jamming an arm out and breaking your hand or your wrist or your collarbone or something like that. Um, so I think this, this attention to peak end experiences in the Systema method is very much in line with what's described in the psychology. And it's almost kind of like a form of extinction therapy for the brain, right? It helps you to um, not erase, but to contextualize older memories that you might have. So the Systema, you asked, come back to your question, you know, what would Vlad or Mikhail do if they're on the, on the plane? Uh, I actually asked Vlad this question once. I was talking about it. It was an immersion camp, and it was actually shortly after I'd had the experience of the tornadic flight, right? And, uh, and I sort of said, you know, what do you do with um, fears that are kind of right down in there and all that kind of stuff? And you're on a plane, you have no control. You can't go to the cockpit and take control of the thing yourself and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you work with that? And he's just like, well, now's a good time to practice your breathing or pray, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's basically like, no, you come to terms with it, try and end it within yourself as much as possible. If you mm. can't control it, then you pray. And then he's also like, mm, we all die sometime. So you also have to be okay with the idea that you might not come, come out of this, right? That it's, which is a difficult thing to come out of as well, like to come yeah. to terms with, but that's, that's their response. Um, but a more, if you kind of extended the, the analogy here, probably the best way for me to be overjoyed with, with air travel again, would be 
for me to learn to fly a light aircraft, right? To learn to fly a Cessna, to be in control of it myself, and then to on purpose fly into slightly choppy or turbulent air, and then gradually over time get more and more comfortable with the idea that choppy air is, you know, turbulence, it very rarely knocks the entire plane out of the air and it's okay. I wouldn't try and fly into a storm right, to simulate the situation that we had before, but at least doing that might give me a different set of associative experiences that I would assume will probably make me happier with flying going forward. I still wouldn't be happy with the whole TSA pat down, crammed into, like cattle into the whole thing idea, so I'm probably still never going to love air travel because the whole experience sucks to me. Um, but probably my visceral reaction to it would be attenuated by creating new peak end experiences through flying. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so, the, the idea of control in the literature is, is, yeah. is key mm. to how we experience situations. So maybe what should happen is that uh, these you know, fake um, steering wheels should pop up Right. Instead, instead of oxygen masks, yes. everyone can pretend. Everybody feels like they're steering. Yeah, yeah, you have to get them all to steer the same way. That's pretty fun. Cool. Yeah. So, so I think one of the things that system allows us to do then is just to kind of one by one or a little at a time attack these these memories or these associative fears that we have, and then gradually kind of contextualize them through the physical experience of training and have this kind of embodied wisdom that allows us to perceive risks more realistically. I think that's what it does. Uh, it doesn't allow us to delude ourselves any further than we would. And actually in a self-defense capacity, I think a lot of people delude themselves that they can get into fights and get out unscathed or that they could you know, disarm somebody with a knife without getting cut or something like that. Mm -hmm. So systemic, it works both ways. It makes us properly aware of the real risks of being in a fight with somebody who's bigger and stronger than you or is armed or there's lots of people. But it also attenuates the, the unknown. They're like, oh, there's nothing that I could do or there's, I, I would be doomed if this happened, right? So it, it, it gives you more of a, a realistic understanding of both your place in the world, I think, and how you assess the risk that way and of yourself, of course. The whole precept of know yourself, right? Allows you to be more in that experiencing self instead of just living in your past experiences or in the future ones that you might anticipate, right? And mm. living in your past will basically lead to depression over time anyway, and leading, just thinking and worrying about things that happen in the future is a recipe for anxiety. So I think Systema is a great antidote to both of those things for that reason, because it just brings us back to the idea that this experience we're having right now is the only thing that really matters. Right, and, mm. and I think the, uh, the control element is important mm. because we're trained in Systema to notice what we can control. Yeah. Right? We're trained in a, in a in a combative simulation to focus more on our own bodies than mm. our partner or opponent. Yeah. Um, we're trained to calm our breathing to, you know, it's just work. It's just a job. We're not, you know, becoming uh, hijacked by, by hostility. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that all those things in our control yeah. and focusing on what we can control and focusing on the edge of our control. Yeah. I think does kind of create more of an anodyne experience around whatever's happening. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's much, you know, one, one of the nights in New Orleans, we were trying to get to the French Quarter and my daughter was driving and the streets were all blocked off. So we mm. had to keep going around in circles and try to, there were drunk people like falling out off the sidewalk onto the roads. It was yeah. pouring with rain. New Orleans is, is a bowl Yeah. and there was no drainage. So there were, there were, you know, pits and, and sinkholes. Yeah. It was dark. There was, mm. you know, I was terrified. Mm. I was much more scared than she was mm. because I felt like there was no, you know, all I could do was make, you know, unmanly whimpering noises. Yeah. Um, to, to try to warn her. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so that, you know, the, 
the sense that there is some control to be had. And there was for me. Yeah. The control, I didn't take it. Mm. Right. Yeah, or yeah. not nearly as, as much as I could have in terms sure. of breathing, calming, because none of the noises I was making were helpful in the least. Sure. They, yeah. You know, at best they were neutral, but more, most probably they were just adding to her yeah. stress and overload. Yeah. So the control that I, ch that I didn't choose to take would have made it a much more pleasant experience for me of just right. calming, breathing, yeah. relaxing, yeah. remembering that she's 22, yeah. she's competent, she's not, sure. she's not the same person who drove, you know, took a left onto oncoming traffic on 15501 <laughs> during our third lesson together. <laughs> Again, peak experience there in teaching your daughter to drive. Right. <laughs> you remember that one. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah brilliant. Okay, so um, again, in the interest of practicality, three things we can maybe do um, in our systemic training to try and um, increase our capacity for uh, assessing risk properly. Um, and we'll just kind of look at it from a self-defense perspective, and then hopefully this will extrapolate outwards, right? Um, again, I think you can think of this in terms of the past, the present, and the future, right? So if you're in the situation, if you're in training, and you have somebody on top of you, and you're starting to panic um, because you're on the ground, um, you might take kind of a couple of minutes to take a time out instead of just trying to fight through this and try and kind of fight your way down. And you might say, can I take a break and just take a breather and then just ask yourself, what in the past has got me feeling like this? Was there like a bully at school who held me down and I felt like I couldn't get up? Mm. You know, did I have kind of a claustrophobic experience once or something like that? Something in my past that makes me unduly afraid of this specific situation. See if you can contextualize it, logically pull that memory back up and see what it is that you're adding to this that's not already there right, mm. uh, in the thing. Um, then as you come into the, back into the situation again, endeavor to return yourself to the present, right? Try and return yourself to the experiencing self, not live with the memory of somebody who was held down or something by somebody else, but just to say, I'm doing this exercise right now. I'm working with Howie. He's helping me to learn how to move on the ground and to deal with this fear and this pressure. So what am I feeling right now? And then use the fundamentals of restoring your breathing, restoring your structure, um, finding some movement somewhere, right? Um, and then relaxing yourself in order to restore that sense of control. Even if you feel like you're not completely in control, at least you have some aspect of control coming back to yourself in that present. Um, and then at the end of the session, perhaps you can um, make a plan in the future to try and stepwise expose yourself to that. If you didn't kind of get the full benefit of maybe working on the ground or whatever it all getting strikes or whatever it was during the class, maybe you can make a plan for like, okay, so next month is going to be my get okay with being on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And then just make yourself a little plan with being like, okay, every day for five minutes in the morning, I'm going to practice just ground engagement and moving on my own. And then I'm going to hold onto a medicine ball and roll around, you know, with something else giving pressure onto me. And then maybe show up five minutes before class and get somebody else just to lay across my body and just hang out there for a couple of minutes and breathe and be okay. And then gradually work your way back up to that same drill in such a way that you can kind of approach it um, in a way that's going to change your experience of it next time. So I think there's things that you can do to try and enhance this capacity that Systema has um, for helping us address risk perception. Right. And, and just to quickly extrapolate, yeah. that creates a mindset of wherever there is a deficit, wherever there's a, a weakness, an anxiety point, yeah. to see it as something to work on yeah. as opposed to something to avoid. To be run from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just another goal, no matter how horrible it seems right now, it's an opportunity for growth. Yeah, definitely. Real. Well, on that note, we'll round it up and thanks very much and have a slightly risky but not too risky day. You too. <laughs>
If you'd like to find out more about Sistema classes and seminars worldwide, please visit www.russianmartialart.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please take a few minutes now to give us a review on iTunes. This is probably the best way of helping us get the word out. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests and discussion topics, please contact us via www.ncsystema.com or email me directly at glenn at ncsystema.com. That's glenn with two n's at ncsystema.com. We welcome your feedback. Many thanks, good health, and see you in training. Thank you.